Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here today. If you're watching online, we're glad to have you with us as well. Yeah, it's another fun week at Plum Creek. Uh, last night, we had a big group of people over in the Life Center. That was our women's event, and I was not allowed to come, but I heard it was great. Uh, last weekend, we had our annual leadership retreat over in Burlington, and this retreat involved elders, deacons, uh, staff, and several other ministry leaders here at Plum Creek. And we had a lot of fun together, and we also prayed together. And we had some time to seek God and ask Him where He's leading our church. Uh, we made some plans, we set some goals for the future, and that's always a challenge because we don't know exactly what the future holds. But this morning, I want to ask you a few questions about your future. And like I said, this is challenging. We, we don't know what's going to happen exactly, but I think this is a good exercise. So are you ready? Here we go. Question number one. If you had to guess, as of this moment, what will your life look like five years from now? What will you be doing? I'd love to hear your answer. As for me, the first thing I think about is my kids. Uh, Hannah and I will be the parents of two high schoolers and one college student, which seems crazy. But, you know, at my age, five years is nothing. So let's look out a little further. What will you be doing 50 years from now? That's a little sobering, isn't it? It's getting real up in here. 50 years from now. Our 10-year-old, Leah Claire, would be 60. <laughs> Jimmy Ranshaw would be 90. <laughs> and I would, I, I don't want to give away my age, but I would be hitting triple digits by that point. But why stop there? Why stop at 50 years from now? I've got one more question, and it's the big one. What will you be doing a million years from now? That question came up at our leadership retreat last weekend. And it was really interesting to think in these terms. Sometimes we talk about the big picture, but this is the really big picture. And it might seem impossible to look a million years down the road, but I don't think we want to ignore this question. This is crucial. We don't want to leave this to chance. So this is one of our big goals here this morning. We want to think about our lives, not just in terms of today, not just in terms of this lifetime. We want to think about life in terms of eternity. And the good news is, that's exactly what we've been doing for several months now. We've been going through the big story of the Bible from creation to Christ. And we've seen that overall, the Bible tells one big story. The Bible is the true story of our great God and His great kingdom. And you know, it's easy to lose sight of this one big theme. We, we get a little mixed up. We can start to think that this story is more about us, like we're at the center. We're the main characters. But that's not where we belong. This is God's story. He is the king, and he's created us to be his subjects. So let's remember this big picture. The Bible is the true story about our great God and his great kingdom. And this is the journey we've been on for the past four months. Every week, we've looked at one chapter of this big story. 
And in week one, we actually started before the beginning. We tried to wrap our heads around this God who is beyond our understanding. And naturally, we struggled with that. In week two, we looked at the story of creation, the birth of the universe, the beginning of the human race. Week three was about the fall. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They sinned against God, and God's good creation was broken. From there, we covered Noah and the flood, the scattering of humanity after the Tower of Babel, Abraham the patriarch and the great blessing he received from God. We, we looked at the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant practice of animal sacrifice, the Old Testament prophets who spoke on God's behalf and told of a coming Messiah. And then we got to week 10. Week 10 was amazing because that's when Jesus showed up. The Messiah was finally here. God's kingdom broke into this fallen world and all kinds of good things started to happen. In week 11, we saw that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. In chapter 12, we saw that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He died on the cross and He became our perfect sacrifice. On Easter Sunday, we saw that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, our risen King. He defeated death. He rose from the grave. Then in week 14, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son, and we saw that God is a loving and forgiving father, and he wants all of his lost children to come home. Then last week, we, we saw that Jesus told his disciples to go out to the ends of the earth and make more disciples. And, and that task has continued up to the present day. God calls His church today to continue the mission and share the good news about Jesus until everyone has heard. And now we've reached the final chapter of God's kingdom story. For 15 weeks, we've, we've covered thousands and thousands of years and now we've arrived at the present, but this morning we want to look ahead to the future. The title of this sermon is The Coming Kingdom, and as we wrap up this series today, I want to make sure we're super clear on this. Remember, this is the big theme of the Bible. So for the next few minutes, we're going to look at Scripture, and we're going to get some clarity about this coming kingdom. And by the time we're finished, we'll be able to answer two very important questions. Question number one, what will we be doing a million years from now? And then we can't stop there. Based on our answer to that first question, how should we live today? If we can answer those two questions by the time we're done here, I'd say that's a pretty good day. So let's get moving. First, we need to go back one more time and define this phrase, kingdom of God. If you've been around Plum Creek for a while, you know we've been talking about this for more than a year now. We set aside 2022 as the year of the kingdom. And then here in 2023, we're focusing on God's kingdom story. And over the past 18 months, there's one definition that we keep using to describe this kingdom. Tom Schneller brought it up again last week. Do you remember that definition? The kingdom of God is any place where God's rule and reign have truly begun. Wherever God rules and reigns, that's where you'll find the kingdom. But where exactly is that place? 
Well, in one sense, God's kingdom is absolutely everywhere. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And God is the ultimate king. That's the way it's always been. His rule and reign had no beginning and his rule and reign will have no end. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. That's an amazing statement. And I want to think about this for a second. Let's go back to those images that represent the different chapters in God's kingdom story. You may have noticed that the first image and the last image look very similar. And why would that be? Well, it's because our story began with the Most High God, and it also ends with the Most High God. He is the everlasting King. So what's up with that arrow in the middle? Well, that arrow represents the history of the universe, everything from creation to the end of time as we know it. Now, I have a question. If both of those squares represent God, is there any difference between square number one and square number two? Well, on the one hand, no, because God never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. In another sense, though, there is a difference between square one and square two, and it has to do with us. Square one represents God before he created us, and square two represents God after this world has ended. Right now, we're living within that arrow, and within this little window, God has invited us to be a part of his kingdom, which is an amazing thing. He wants us to be with him in the second box. Now, we said that God already rules and reigns over everything. He's the ultimate king. But we've seen that a lot of bad things have happened within that arrow, right? And why is that? Well, it's because despite the fact that God is the ultimate king, we know when we look at history and when we look at the world today, a lot of people have rejected God's authority. They do not see him as king. They're not living that way. Now, that began back with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They ate the fruit. They disobeyed God. They pushed Him off the throne. And in doing that, they brought a curse down on themselves, and they brought a curse down on this world. And ever since, all of humanity has followed their example. All of us have sinned against God. Every sin is an act of rebellion against Him. Every sin brings more brokenness into this world. But the good news is, God never gave up on us. And why is that? It's because He loves us. And He wants us to be with Him over in that second box. To join Him for all eternity. Giving Him glory and praise, the worship He deserves. So what did God do? Well, He made a way for us to reverse the curse. And it's actually not us. It's actually Jesus who did that. 
This is how God can bring us back into his kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus made a big announcement. Mark 1.14 says this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. This is the very beginning of his ministry. And he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, this was very good news. The kingdom of God had come near. But why was that news so good? Well, it goes back to our definition. God's kingdom is any place where his rule and his reign have truly begun. And when God's rule is in full effect, everything that's wrong is made right. Everything that's broken is restored. And did you notice the timing here? Jesus says that God's kingdom has come near. It's already here. But this is where things get confusing. Way back then, 2,000 years ago, the kingdom was here on earth because the king had come. That's Jesus. But then in other places, Jesus talks like the kingdom had not yet shown up. The Lord's Prayer is a perfect example In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. And he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what do you notice there? Jesus prays for God's kingdom to come here on earth. But why would he make that request if the kingdom was already here? Well, here's the deal. Jesus talked about the kingdom in both the present tense and the future tense. And this is really important. Theologians call this the already not yet nature of God's kingdom. And here's how it works. Jesus established this kingdom when he was here on earth. It's already here. But there are still better things to come. Much better. One day... Jesus will destroy the powers of evil and sin and death. He already defeated those powers 2,000 years ago, but he hasn't yet destroyed them. Not yet. That's going to happen. That day will come, but it's still in the future. Now, this concept explains a lot of what we see in the world. I'll give you an example. Let's think about prayer. Prayer's an interesting thing, isn't it? Do you ever wonder if prayer even makes a difference? That's a legitimate question. Because sometimes we pray for a person who is sick. And on certain occasions, that sick person will get well. They get better, right? But then other times, we pray for a sick person and they don't get better. So what's going on there? This helps us understand. It's the already, not yet, nature of God's kingdom. At certain times and at certain places, we get to see God's rule and reign push back the darkness, push back that curse. At other times, though, we see that there is still evil in this world. The devil has a certain amount of authority here. So there is a tension This tension is that the kingdom has already arrived, but it's not yet fully realized. We can also also see this tension play out in our souls. Think about this. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
If you have been saved by grace through faith, what does that mean? Well, it means your sins are forgiven. Your relationship with God is restored and it's healed. And it was Jesus who made that possible. Jesus went to the cross and he paid the penalty that uh, you deserve to pay. He took your place when he died. The Apostle Paul said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. This is amazing. Like if you've given your life to Jesus, that means when God looks at you now, he sees you as righteous, good, pure. That's the reality. It's a present reality. But there's also a not yet side of this, right? Because even though God looks at me and he sees me as righteous, I'm not yet living up to that title, am I? I still sin. I I still do wrong more than I care to admit. And if you're being honest, you will admit you're right there with me. So how do we make sense of this? It's the already, not yet nature of God's kingdom. But don't give up hope because it won't always be this way. It's time for us to jump ahead and look at the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And for the moment, I want to read just one verse, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Now, in this verse, John is describing the, the vision that God gave him. It's a vision of the future. And John says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Did you catch that? The kingdom of this world, by that point, has become the kingdom of our Lord. So, This is the day when God destroys everything that's messed up about this world. God's rule and reign will break into every dark corner, into every human heart. And on that day, the not yet phase of the kingdom will be obsolete. That's over. So let's get specific. What will that final, fully realized version of the kingdom look like? Well, John gives us a detailed description in the last two chapters of Revelation. Let's fast forward to Revelation 21, and I'll read just the first two verses of this chapter. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, now I have to be honest with you guys. This is sort of killing me because this entire chapter is awesome. And we could spend literally all day on just these two verses, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to hit the highlights here. I love Revelation because it just blows away those lame ideas about heaven that you see all over the place. The Bible does not say that we're going to float up to the sky someday and sit on a cloud and strum on a harp. That's not in there. We don't see that picture. 
In fact, based on this description, we're not going up to heaven, right? This new city, the new Jerusalem is coming down. And this, this will be a physical place. This new earth will be a physical place where we, everyone who belongs to Jesus, will live in a resurrected body. And these resurrected physical bodies will have none of the problems that we face in our current bodies, like aches and pains and aging and sagging and illness and death. It's going to be good. Now, I encourage you to read all of Revelation 21 and 22 on your own this week. And as you do, remember that John is using human language to describe things that are beyond human comprehension. He's doing the best he can, but we just don't have words to describe what he is seeing. Uh, Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So let's keep that in mind. Our imagination is completely inadequate here. But God has given us enough information. He's told us enough so that we can know this is the home we've been looking for all of our lives. I want to read the last few verses of Revelation 21, starting with verse 22. John writes, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on that day, will its gate, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, and nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, there's so much I want to say here, but I'll just point out one detail that would be very easy to miss. We'll look back at verse 24. It says, the nations will walk by the light of the glory of God, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into this city. This is so good. There is an amazing connection here that goes back to other things we've talked about in God's kingdom story. Uh, If you were here last week, you know that we talked about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, the primary task that Jesus gave his church. And do you remember what that was? What did Jesus tell his disciples to do? He said, go out into all the world and make more disciples. Make more disciples of all nations. And what does that tell us? It tells us that God wants people of every tribe, every language, every nation to be citizens in this city, to be his subjects in this new kingdom. Why? Partially because he loves every human being that he's ever created. But the greater purpose is this. When all the nations of the world come to God in worship, his glory is magnified. Let me explain what I mean here. 
we need to go back to chapter 5 of God's kingdom story. It's been a while now. But that's where we talked about the scattering of humanity after the Tower of Babel. And I think a lot of people would just skip past this chapter of of the story because it doesn't seem as important as some of the other things we've talked about. But if you were here in week five, do you remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? There was this group of people, and they got really full of themselves, and they tried to put themselves on equal footing with God by building this amazing tower. And what did God do? He confused their common language, and he scattered them out to the ends of the earth. Some of you might remember this map that we used. We start at the cradle of civilization. That's where the Tower of Babel was located. But from there, God scattered these people out all over the place. And they went to different regions of the world where they developed different cultures and different languages. That's why why we see all the diversity that we see today. So at that point in history, what was God up to? Well, here's what we said. We said, God launched a long-term plan to bring all nations together to worship Him. So back in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, there is a great scattering. But here in Revelation 21, there is a great gathering. The kings of the earth bring their splendor into this holy city. And why is that important? How does that bring God greater glory? Well, you could think about it in terms of a colorful tapestry or a rug. This picture here is a rug that was woven in Morocco. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful rug, partially because it was made with so many different colors. Let's, let's zoom in a little bit here. When you do that, you can see that each individual thread, each individual color contributes to the overall design. Now imagine for a second. Let's say this rug was made with threads that are all the same color. Let's say a dingy gray. That gray rug would look fine, but these colors give it a different level of beauty. The colorful design reflects the artistry and the skill of the person who made the rug. And in a similar way, when we come together, all nations, and worship God, we will reflect his artistry, his skill, and his beauty. This is one of the amazing things about God's kingdom. But I could go on and on here. There are so many connections between Revelation and the rest of God's kingdom story. For example, in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, John says, there is a crystal clear river flowing through the middle of the city. It's called the river of life. There's also a beautiful tree that stretches over both sides of that river, and it's called the tree of life. And that might sound familiar. Where, where did we read about a tree of life? Way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. So do you see what John is describing here? He's describing a new and restored version of the Garden of Eden. But we we saw his other description. He he talked about this new city, the, the new Jerusalem. And what do you get when you combine both of those descriptions? 
Well, you have a perfect city and a perfect garden coexisting in a real physical space. So in heaven, we'll have the best of the city and the best of nature with none of the downsides of either one. So we'll, we'll have agriculture and architecture. We'll, we'll have art and plants and animals and entertainment and all of these things without sin. I can't tell you exactly what life will look like in, in this final complete version of God's kingdom, but I do know it won't be boring. Heaven will have all of the things we love about earth, except those things will all be infinitely better. Heaven will have none of the things we hate about life on earth, like tears and pain and death. Those things will be gone. But best of all, far and away above everything else, He will be there. The, the everlasting King will rule over an, a never-ending kingdom. And if you have given your life to Jesus, that's where you will be a million years from now. You'll be in this holy city, this restored version of the Garden of Eden, and you will be worshiping your King and loving it. Now, before I close, I need to mention two things very quickly. First, do not assume that everyone ends up in this kingdom. God has invited everyone to be there, but not everyone accepts his invitation. And you know, it would be wrong for me to say that heaven is a real place, but then leave out the fact that hell is also a real place. As you read through Revelation 21, you'll, you'll come across John talking about the lake of fire. And God doesn't want that future for anyone. But when people decide to reject his authority, he honors that decision. And that's one of the reasons we're so passionate about our mission here at Plum Creek. We're serious about leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus because, number one, he told us to do that. And number two, we want as many people as possible to spend eternity with God. And that brings us to the last thing I want to talk about here, very briefly. We said we need to answer two questions today, and do you remember the second question? Based on what we'll be doing a million years from now, how should we live today? Well, we're still living in the time of that arrow, aren't we? We're in this already not yet in between phase of God's kingdom and here at this in between phase the true church is the true kingdom of God in the world today God calls every church to be a kingdom outpost he, he wants to partner with us to advance his kingdom into a dark world and let me tell you this calling is far more than just going to church once a week we need to go out and show the world what it looks like when God rules and reigns. And as we do that, we need to strike a balance between the already and the not yet. And churches uh, don't always get this balance right. Some churches focus too much on the already. They're, they're really focused on the here and now. And they're not thinking very much about the coming kingdom. In these churches, 
You don't hear much preaching about sin or judgment or the need for salvation in Jesus. Because it's mostly about just doing good deeds here on earth. And that's not Jesus. Sure, he met physical needs. He did all kinds of good deeds. But he was most concerned with spiritual needs because those things are about eternity. Then on the other end of the spectrum, some churches focus too much on the later, on the not yet. That's the attitude that says, hey, Jesus is in my heart, and I'm going to heaven. So my job is to just hang on and wait until God takes me home. But that's not Jesus either. God's kingdom brings healing and wholeness to every area of life. That's what Jesus brought, and God enables the church to follow his example. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can show the world what it looks like when God rules and he reigns in both the already and the not yet. So what does that look like? Well, on the already side, we obey the great commandment. We love God and we love people in an extraordinary way. Then over on the not yet side, we carry out the great commission because we want to see as many people as possible spending eternity with God. We want to help people find eternal life through Jesus. Then we also look to the future and we take comfort and hold on to God's promises that there is a heaven and we can, we can be confident in the hope of heaven. So there's your answer. That's how we should live today. And with that, we've come to the end of God's kingdom story, at least this series. And in a way, I'm, I'm sad about that, but I'm also excited because we're not really done. This isn't just a story. This is what life is all about. So we want to go out and live this story, share it with as many people as possible. We'll, we'll move into that mode next week. And let's pray that God will help us live this story. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you have invited us to be with you forever. You created us for your glory and Many times we have messed that up. We have not honored you as king. But I thank you that you didn't give up on us. I thank you for the parable Jesus told about the prodigal son, that you are a good, loving, forgiving father, and you want all of your lost children to come home. I thank you for everyone who has already come home to you. And I pray that you will help us to live in the way that you've called us to live. And I also pray for anyone who has not yet come home, that they would accept your invitation even today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.